Who or what is the corpse? Is he the living dead come to kill us all? Or is he a soldier of justice condemned to walk the face of the earth, fighting a never-ending mission against lawbreakers so that society may function? Is he dead or alive? Man or Superman? Friend or foe? Monster or master? Angel or devil? Vigilante or victim? Plague or gift? He is all of these things, and he is none of them. He is the corpse. Chapter 4 A Call to Arms The copies of the Bugle, the Ledger, the Register, and the Financial News arrived at Manor House promptly at 7 a.m. as usual. The electronic contents were transmitted wirelessly to the printing terminal, which in this case was located in the Rambling Manse's large kitchen. The gears and levers whirred and clicked as they printed out the copies of all four publications. Most people merely rented the machines from one of the publishers who funded their maintenance and repair with a small amount added to each customer's subscription fee. Colin hadn't wanted to bother with yet more maintenance personnel coming into his house, so he had purchased the printer himself, a large outlay which only a few private citizens could afford. Warren, the manor house chef and butler and personal assistant in all of Colin's underground activities, presented the newspapers to Colin on a silver tray, along with his usual breakfast of smoked fish, whole wheat toast with butter, and fresh squeezed orange and tomato juices. He placed the tray down on the large antique mahogany desk that Colin had placed in his oversized master bedroom. Colin performed all his real work in his basement laboratory. He rarely used that particular desk for anything other than eating breakfast and mournful contemplation. This morning, he had both activities on the docket. Can I get you anything else, sir? Warren asked. Colin looked up at him. No, Warren, not right now, thank you. I believe that I'll be in the laboratory this morning. No interruptions, if you please. On the job, sir, Warren said. Good man. Colin sat at the leviathan of a desk. He picked at his food distractedly and glanced at the rain through the windows. So much was up in the air right now that he felt gratified that he could depend on Warren. As Colin looked over the morning editions of the papers, he didn't see anything amiss. As he did every morning, he pored over the daily tabloids for news of the corpse. He had made his way through the bugle and the register when he picked up the ledger. They had put together a rush extra edition which amounted to only a four-page sheet wrapped around their normal edition. It was there that he saw it trouble. A banner headline screaming in 99-point type, THE CORPSE STRIKES! Underneath this was a stock photograph of the castle. As a frequent benefactor of the police department, he recognized the building immediately. Colin took a deep breath, pulled the paper up close to his eyes, and read intently, Early this morning, the public menace known as the corpse made his ugly presence known yet again. 
When the lifeless body of an unidentified man was discovered on the front steps of the castle, the main police department headquarters. According to a police department spokesman, Chief Hamilton Pringle will be holding a press conference later today at which he will answer all questions about this latest attack. Reporters on the scene collected rumors from castle personnel regarding the incident. These employees, who requested to remain unidentified, stated that the body was discovered by a police detective at about 3.30 a.m. when the man went out of the building to buy cigarettes. Officers were immediately able to link the victim to the mysterious figure known as the corpse, as a note was attached to the body signed by the known fiend. The contents of the note were not divulged. The quoted sources wished to emphasize that the investigation was still at a very early stage and efforts to retrieve all information were ongoing. Chief Pringle will address reporters at 3 p.m. this afternoon. On the inside of the sheet were a few boilerplate articles speculating on the true nature of the corpse and assessing what impact he had made on the city of New Holland since coming on the scene several years ago. Colin lowered the newspaper and rubbed his eyes. This was a whole new wrinkle. He knew that the corpse had nothing to do with this murder whatsoever. He knew because the corpse was, at this very moment, resting in his basement and had been doing so for months. And he knew what was behind this attack on the corpse's credibility, if not exactly who was responsible. During the previous few months, Colin Van Dyke had sent out the word to his informants and they had heard the scuttlebutt going around New Holland. The criminal element was glad to have had the corpse out of their hair for so long now. In fact, they were beginning to wonder where he was or if he would ever come back. Cullen knew the police were smug enough to think the corpse was gone for good and would no longer embarrass them by cleaning the streets of evildoers. But the lawless element was more wily and clever than that, Colin thought. They knew the corpse was probably down but not out. With their animal cunning, they could sense that he was weak, embattled, but using his time away to gain strength, retrofit himself for a comeback. Now was the time for them to strike at him while he was vulnerable and remove his meddling ways from their landscape for good. Colin knew that sooner rather than later this would all be coming to a head. The criminal masterminds would strike at the corpse and strike at him soon. He knew their plan. He could read them like an open book. Colin knew that they would never find the corpse wherever he was, so they would be forced to try to draw the corpse out into the open. From there they would hope to destroy him, trap him, or at least discredit him as a force against evil. After that, they could run roughshod over New Holland, do what they wanted, and take what they pleased, with only the beleaguered and under-budgeted police department to get in their way. He had to act quickly before the situation got out of hand. But there was a problem. Colin was ready to pursue a plan of action, but was the corpse. And, if not, could he be made ready? Physically, mentally, and emotionally, he pushed his half-finished breakfast aside. Warren? He called. Warren appeared from the kitchen. Yes, sir. Colin brandished the front page of the register. Have you seen this? I'm afraid I did, sir. An attempt to ruin our reputation. Just as you were worried about. Yet again, I wish I had been wrong about something. Damn my insight! 
That's not the only thing concerning me. I assume you are referring to our friend downstairs. Do you think he'll be ready for this assault? If I know him, he'll be ready mentally. His physical condition is what I'm really worried about. We shall see in short order. I'm going down right now. I shouldn't be down there for quite some time. Please take a message if anyone calls. Will do, sir. Warren gathered up the breakfast dishes, then vanished back into the kitchen. Warren knew exactly what Colin meant. Throughout the long, tragic process that had led Colin and his friend to the creation and implementation of the corpse, Warren had been fully in the know, aware of any and all developments, as well as assisting his employer as needed. Colin had made clear to Warren that his help had been invaluable all along the way, and he was grateful for his devotion and steadfast service in the difficult crusade that weighed heavily upon him. Warren had been almost as disturbed as Colin had by the unanticipated turn of events. In spite of the mental anguish enforced upon him, he had undertaken to help Colin in any way required of him. That was the least he could do. After all, he had done the same for Josiah Van Dyke, who, in his many years as a mogul, had harbored secrets even more terrible and worrying than anything that Colin had the misfortune to be burdened with. But the most difficult part of Warren's situation was not the load of physical chores required, but the obvious need to keep any and all knowledge of anything he heard or saw in Manor House exclusively to himself. No relative, no paramour, no friend could ever know even a hint of any of it. Perhaps that was the overarching reason why Charles George Warren had kept people at a distance. He rarely contacted his distant relatives in England did not seek any romantic entanglements, and did not choose to cultivate any friendships. A lonely life, but a necessary one. The most difficult part of his service to his employer, Warren thought, was the delicate decision of when to offer help and when to leave his employer to work out his dilemmas by himself. However, right at this moment, his choice was clear. Colin Van Dyke needed to be by himself. Warren busied himself, tidying up the kitchen. Colin stood in his study alone. He once again picked up a crystal glass from the silver tray on his desktop. He slowly decanted two fingers of the Orkney Island Gold Label Whiskey into the glass. He picked it up in his hands, slowly swishing the brown liquid around. He rubbed his forehead as the rain in sheets pounded against the window panes. He stopped, breathed in deeply, turned, and stared at his reflection in the full-length mirror behind him next to the door. But he did not see his own image. In its place, he saw the image of his old friend being subjected to undue tortures, being assaulted with chemicals, electrical shocks, and injections of various drugs. The image of his friend becoming the corpse. And now he saw in this mirror his friend standing there in the room in his black cape and black hat, breathing heavily, the same way that Colin was breathing heavily, his metal chest plate rising slowly under his black tunic, his knuckles cracking as he made two bald fists inside his reinforced leather gloves. Colin saw now, not his friend, but the iconic image of the mysterious enemy of evil, the corpse, perhaps in the same way that his enemies saw him towering, deformed, inscrutable, and possessed of a variety of supernatural powers too horrible to contemplate. 
the same image that had probably been burned forever into the superstition-loving minds of all the evildoers that had the misfortune to encounter it. And now, Colin, his breathing even more labored, saw that same image besmirched by the awful idea that the corpse had turned evil, that he would kill at random, that he would leave dead bodies for the police to discover, with nothing but a flimsy excuse and a selfish disregard for the public safety left behind. He would not have it! With sudden fury, Colin flung the whiskey-filled glass at the mirror, shattering it into a million pieces. Warren came running and rapped on the door to the study in a fastidious display of readiness. Mr. Van Dyke, are you all right in there? He asked. Colin tried to catch his breath as he braced himself against the desk. Warren opened the door and peeked inside. Colin looked up sheepishly and nodded his head. I'm fine, Warren, he said slowly. Or, at least, I will be just letting off a little steam. Warren nodded, attempting to understand. I see. Uh, will you be requiring anything? He asked. No, not just now. Thank you for your concern, Warren. Very well, sir, he said, shutting the door behind him. Colin had caught his breath by now. He smoothed back the sweat-drenched hair on top of his head. He certainly appeared to have regained his composure, but deep inside, he was still a roiling storm of guilt, anger, and shame. To focus that rage, Van Dyke, he thought to himself. Funnel it into something positive. He returned to the bookcase where he pulled the book on the shelf that acted as a trigger once again. The bookcase swung open and Colin disappeared down the passageway to the stone staircase that led to the basement laboratory, his mind burdened down with a depressingly large number of weighty thoughts. The rain came down even harder now upon Manor House, but Colin Van Dyke, ensconced in his basement compound, could not hear the relentless pounding of the furious water. The sound of his many scientific machines and equipment drowned out all other noises. The devices of his own construction knocked and banged away, funneling relief and succor to the twisted figure in the white egg-shaped pod on the platform at the center of the room. Electricity, chemicals, and specially balanced air in equal measure were pumped into the hermetically sealed plastic enclosure with a large, man-sized window on its front. Colin approached the sad, distorted being gingerly. He did not refer to him by his former name. After his transformation into The Corpse, Colin attempted to continue addressing him by his given name, but the man would not accept it. That man no longer exists, he would say. I forbid you to speak that name ever again. If you wish to refer to me in the third person, you should say the corpse. If you are going to address me directly, just say you. That will suffice. That exchange had filled Colin with sadness. He had choked back tears and left the room, but he took the wishes of the corpse to heart. He had to. Colin approached. How are you feeling? The corpse moved his head slightly. It appeared that his skull would snap off if he moved any faster. Uh, what a question. Yes, uh, I know. Just, just tell me the best you can. Uh, the last... Adventure did me no bit of good. It's taking me longer than ever to recover now. 
Yes, I know. I'm, I'm working on that. But do you feel any better? What I'm really wondering is, are you up to another job? Mentally, I'm ready. As far as my physical condition, you would know about that much better than I. Colin paused. You know I didn't want this. Yes, I know. I, I thought we've gone over this. I, I volunteered for this thing, so don't torture yourself, Colin. I'm a big boy. Just keep me going the, the best you can. I, I don't know how you can do it, Colin said. I, I have no choice. Honestly, do you, do you see any other way? So let's do this, please. At least we're doing some good for somebody. That, that's all I have to get me through. Okay, let's do it then. Oh, what's the job? Colin sighed deeply. There's trouble. I don't know the specifics, but for some reason, someone is trying to discredit you. There was a murder victim left on the front steps at the castle. Yes. The murderer attached a note to the body and signed your name to it. The conventional wisdom says that you had something to do with it. What? Really? Shock and hurt registered on the face of the corpse. Uh, uh, that is a surprise. But I suppose deep down I was really expecting something along these lines at some point. I know. We knew you were going to make enemies in the criminal underclass, uh, powerful enemies, and we knew they would eventually go to any lengths to attack you physically or, failing that, attack your reputation. Of course, you're right. So that was part of the deal all along, but the thing is, what are we going to do about it? Colin asked. The corpse thought intently. Who was the victim? They, they haven't said anything yet, but I am going to find out. Bet on that. Okay. Get some facts in order. We, we need to know who's behind this. As soon as you get the lowdown, I'm ready for whatever you need me to do. Thanks, Colin said. I knew I could count on you. The corpse is ready to go. Back into action. Very good. I'll do some research on the computer. Then we can go over what we know. We'll make up a list of likely suspects and then make up a plan of action. Colin moved to the keyboard on the workbench and started up his JCN Turbo computer. From this machine, he had access to an entire world of information. In this location, he had installed a main internet node under the guise of acting as an internet service provider. With this powerful connection, he could unleash a torrent of knowledge from the information superhighway, the likes of which usually was reserved to government agencies and large universities. The computer location was registered in the name of one of Collins' many nonprofit charitable organizations, Progress for Humanity. The organization was not just a flimsy cover story. The group did perform many charitable activities. This would prevent anyone who happened to investigate the organization from discovering the activities Colin was performing in his basement. Because of his status as representative of a charitable organization, Colin was able to open many more doors, both literal and figurative. After several minutes of intense typing, he was able to find whatever information was available to the public. 
The websites of all the newspapers and video providers in town had only sparse information at this point. He would have to go deeper, accessing areas that were forbidden to the public to ferret out hidden clues and background details. But first, he had to begin the process of rejuvenation, so the corpse could join him in this quest. He walked over to the white pot at the center of the room. You know this is going to take hours. I'm going to begin the process now and start the countdown clock. The corpse nodded acknowledgement. Colin flipped several switches near the giant mechanical womb containing the corpse. Fluids of Colin's own concoction were released from the various containers and flowed into his wretched circulatory system. The process would take several hours if all went well. If there were any complications, it could take days to get it all sorted out. By the end of the day, the corpse would be ready to leave his protective environment on a temporary basis, up to several hours at a time. The corpse shut his eyes tight in anticipation of the invigorating fluids entering his system. Then, the healing liquids began to course through him, bringing temporary life to his decaying form. He felt the familiar feelings that he had come to both long for and dread over the past few years. The rush of power and vitality, the feeling of invulnerability, the lightheaded and floaty sensation that both increased perception and at that same time made it fuzzy around the edges. At that moment, he was both slave and master, king and pauper, deity and flea. He held within him supernatural powers that gave him sway over ordinary men, but at the same time these powers hobbled him. After the powers had melted away like a sandcastle on the beach eroding at high tide, their residue would cause him to decay even further, with only intensive, lengthy, and painful treatments available to make him whole once again, or at least as close to whole as he could come in his state of advanced disability. Now, once again, the corpse began his journey from near death to a superhuman existence. He started to feel vital, fresh, and sharp. Soon, he would be ready to take on whatever challenges would come his way. By the time the process reached its conclusion, he would harbor near mystical powers that would allow him to defeat any man. He felt strong. He felt invincible. The corpse would soon be ready again to strike at the black heart of the criminal underworld. You have been listening to another chapter of The Corpse, Book One, The Menace in the Mirror, by Scott Mercer, read by the author. Music by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com, licensed under a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. If you would like to support this podcast financially, please go to anchor.fm forward slash Scott dash Mercer. That's S-C-O-T-T dash M-E-R-C-E-R. Instructions for downloading this podcast are also available at that site. You may contact the author at the following address, scottmercermail at gmail.com. S-C-O-T-T-M-E-R-C-E-R 
M-A-I-L at gmail.com. Be sure to listen in again next time for the next exciting chapter of The Menace in the Mirror on Spectacular Stories.